Hello, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I'm Adrian Dobb, the Ali Velshi to Laura Good's Rachel Maddow, which is just another way of saying that Laura Good has the week off. What you're about to hear is the third of our Claim and Conversations Online, which was an event on September 9th of this year, entitled Departmentalize Now, the Imperative for African and African American Studies. And it features Eddie Glaude, Kimberly Thomas-McNair, Eileen Robinson, and Fabio Rojas. We'll be returning with regular episodes of The Feminist Present on October 7th with a conversation with author Morgan Jerkins. But for now, please enjoy Departmentalize Now, the Imperative for African and African American Studies. Welcome to Departmentalize Now, the imperative for African and African American studies. We're so pleased to see you here for this timely conversation and to welcome our esteemed panel of scholars. I want to thank our colleagues in African and African American studies, our colleagues at the Center for the Comparative Study in Race and Ethnicity for their immense support of this event. Today is the second day of the scholar strike for Black Lives in protest over police murder and racial injustice. While we didn't time it that way, we hope that this event can serve as a reflection on how academia must remake itself to be able to credibly lead and light the way in the struggle for an anti-racist society. I'm Adrian Dobb, director of the Clayman Institute, which has, since 1974, conducted research around topics concerning feminism, gender, and sexuality, brought together interdisciplinary communities of scholars, and translated gender research to broad audiences beyond academia. Part and parcel of this history is hosting and participating in debates and discussions about urgent topics related to equality and justice. Questions of race and intersectionality are central to our feminism and to our project of creating a more equitable university. Another relevant fact about me, I have also until quite recently directed Stanford's program in feminist gender and sexuality studies, which, like African and African American studies, is currently an interdisciplinary program, or IDP. I know that's intimately what it means to run a program and where the very real limitations lie in that organizational structure. This event originated in conversations about these limits within the claimant community, faculty, staff, fellows, and students, during which we recognized that mobilization to departmentalize AAAS was an important extension of our values and of our mission. Speaking briefly to the specific situation at Stanford, the administration has long suggested that it values African and African-American studies, but that it can demonstrate that value without departmentalizing AAAS. We at Clayman think that that's got it backwards. Valuing means departmentalization. That's the case we'll try to make today. It's not about money. It's not about bias. It's about the way in which an institution signals what counts as knowledge, what counts as research, what counts as scholarship, and what doesn't. There's a Stanford-specific case to be made for that, and it'll be made at other events. We want to discuss it today in a broader context. To be clear, this event is our contribution to a broader conversation, one carried largely by people outside of our organization. You may well wonder why we decided to put it on at all, given all the brilliant organizing already happening by faculty and CCSRE, AAAS, and elsewhere, by graduate students, by undergraduates, and by alumni. This event is our attempt to say that AAAS departmentalization is important to scholars in gender studies and that advocacy for it ought to be undertaken broadly across the university. Black lives are a central feminist issue and the way knowledge production at university is organized and the way that organization either centers or erases certain concerns and positions is perhaps the most central feminist issue that scholars can address within the university. Our goal today is to bring together preeminent scholars and experts in the field to consider timely questions about black studies, knowledge production, feminism, anti-racism, and social movements in higher education. The Stanford-specific backdrop will be part of the conversation, but we want to embed it within the broader context of the university, of disciplinarity, and the disciplines of black studies and African-American studies in the United States. We want to thank our colleagues at AAAS and CCSRE for their support and partnership in this event. We've been in close consultation with them throughout the planning of it. We're thrilled that we have such a great panel of speakers. We're thrilled that it's such a diverse panel. African-American studies, like gender studies, is not vertical or hierarchical. Instead, knowledge is produced and legitimated at every level. 
So in the spirit of upending old academic hierarchies, we are excited to have a postdoctoral fellow, an assistant professor, and two full professors discussing today. Let me now introduce our guests. Eddie Guad is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor and Chair of African American Studies at Princeton University. He is the former president of the American Academy of Religion, the largest professional organization of scholars of religion in the world. Guad is the author of several important books, including Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul, which has been described as one of the most imaginative, daring books of the 21st century. His most recent book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own, was released in June of this year. And I would wave it around now, but because it is 2020, I have it as a Kindle book, so I cannot wave it currently. But it is a, an amazing book. Imani Perry described it as precisely the witness we need for our treacherous times, and I think it's absolutely right. Glaude is also a columnist for Time Magazine and a regular contributor on MSNBC, including, I believe, this morning. He hails from Moss Point, Mississippi, a small town on the Gulf Coast, and is a graduate of Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Kimberly Thomas McNair is a postdoctoral fellow in African and African-American studies at Stanford. She holds a PhD in African-American and African diaspora studies from the University of California, Berkeley. Kimberly is a historian and her research focuses on black social movements, activist traditions, and expressive culture in the African diaspora. She has a manuscript in progress and her work has appeared in the Drama Review and the Color of New Media Anthology, Hashtag Identity, Twitter, and Diversity. Kimberly is currently co-editing the 2020 Project, a special issue on COVID-19 and global Black Lives Matter uprisings for Stanford. Eileen K. Robinson is an assistant professor of theater and performance studies and faculty fellow in AAAS at Stanford University. As a historian of performance and science, she specializes in the history of technological innovation, magic performance, and Black performance cultures. Her book project, currently entitled Theaters of Revelation, Instruments of Performance in 19th Century Public Science, examines the intersections between technological, scientific, and theatrical knowledge in early science museums. And I've actually read parts of this work and it's gonna be great. She has held fellowships from SSRC and the NSF and is a graduate of Northwestern and Harvard universities. And finally, Fabio Rojas is the Virginia L. Roberts Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Bloomington. He is also the co-editor of Context, Sociology for the Public, the official magazine of the American Sociological Association. His books include From Black Power to Black Studies, How a Radical Social Movement Became an Academic Discipline, as well as Party in the Street, the Anti-War Movement and the Democratic Party after 9-11, and Theory for the Working Sociologists. Now, let me start with the broadest possible question. Since the 1968 founding of the first Black Studies Department, there have been deep and significant connections between the Black Power Movement and the founding of Black Studies Departments. Dr. Rojas, can you start by providing some historical context, speaking how this transition from movement to department ended up happening? Yes, thank you very much for that very nice introduction. So when I was invited to participate on this panel, what I wanted to do was I wanted to reach into my archives of material on the history of Black studies or African-American studies in order to explain to the typical reader or audience member what is the relationship between Black power, the political movement, and African-American studies as an academic discipline. And then also to dig into my files, it turns out I have a fair amount of material on Stanford University in particular, and I have some documents that would shed some light on kind of what the issues were in terms of setting up as a department, what the challenges were, and how those kind of resonate today. So Black Studies starts, the date is actually a little kind of murky. It's like all historical moments. There's not like an exact day. But as early as 1966, there were proposals for Black Studies programs, specifically at San Francisco State University, which back then was called San Francisco State College. The gentleman in the photograph here is an activist named Jimmy Garrett. He was a member of the Black Panthers uh, back in the 1960s, and he signed up to be a student at San Francisco State College, specifically in order to mobilize and train students in revolutionary activities and political mobilization. He is the person who, in my opinion, really generated the idea of Black studies as a coherent form of study with a set of courses that would lead you to a deeper understanding of African-American history and culture. After the Third World Strike, which was the moment in history at San Francisco State College 
where people demanded ethnic studies and black studies in particular. After that was granted, federal investigators started looking into various examples of student activism and unrest. And in 1970, they interviewed Jimmy Garrett himself, and they asked him to explain the link between uh, his movement and black studies. So this is from an interview conducted by federal investigators with Jimmy Garrett, who at that point had left San Francisco State College. That's a separate story. But he said, so we decided, we being the Black Student Union, Black Student Unions were very prominent in that era, and they remained very prominent in student activism. We decided, although this program was not called Black Studies at the time, it was just called part of the EC. The EC is the Experimental College. That was a section of San Francisco State College that was for new courses. So they signed up for the Experimental College, proposed Black courses, or as he calls them in this interview transcript, Black-oriented course. So at that time to develop this idea, I wrote a proposal, the first Black Studies proposal, all this stuff. I wrote a proposal. We have to go through the Instructional Policies Committee. So you see the bureaucracy of the university kind of slowly appearing. He writes this proposal, he submits it, and he says that a lot of other committees, which is one reason why instead of going to committees now, Black people on the campus more move in a more fundamental basis. So back then, even in 1970, or even as early 1966, people realized that the bureaucratic structure of the university was not as quick as you might want it to be, not as flexible as you might imagine, so therefore they had to go to social protest. What actually happened? So what they did is they signed up for the experimental college, they being the Black Student Union members, many of them who were Panthers or who hung out with Panthers uh, at that time in Oakland and San Francisco, and they developed a curriculum. They proposed these courses. The courses were accepted within the experimental college. And to the best of my ability, this is the first Black Studies pamphlet or curriculum that I've been able to find. This is from spring of 1968. It does not represent the first generation of Black Studies courses. There were some courses possibly at Laney College in Oakland and earlier. But this is the first booklet I've been able to find and has examples from anthropology, English, dramatic arts, education, music, psychology, sociology. And that is the first moment where a coherent vision of what a Black-oriented uh, higher education would look like. And that was the version of Black Studies that was eventually instituted at San Francisco State and many other places like Stanford University. So let me turn to Stanford in particular. When I went through my files this morning, I found some very interesting documentation that is unpublished. I did not publish on the Stanford program. The first chair of Black Studies or African-American Studies at Stanford was a very esteemed anthropologist named St. Clair Drake. So if you know anthropology, super, super influential anthropologist, he was the first chair there. And these snippets of text come from a report. So what happened was early in the history of Black Studies, a number of nonprofit foundations and the National Endowment for the Humanities had made grants to a number of universities to help out with operating costs. And this is a report from St. Clair Drake about a year into it. From the outset, I've tried to keep in mind the fact that I was dealing with a new and sensitive field, unquote, that the black students at Stanford who asked for the program are judging in part in relationship to what they perceive of black studies programs elsewhere is accomplishing. I've also been continuously aware that the Stanford ethos, quote unquote, demands that this program have certain features not found in other programs. So there's kind of some cultural pushback where people are saying, no, no, you got to do it the Stanford way, let's slow this down. Let me go read a couple sentences from the quote below. One of my tasks as chairman this year has been that trying to make the core serve two constituencies, white students who are concerned and disturbed over the continued existence of racism in America, I'll skip, and black and brown students who take the existence of racism and prejudice against them as one of the facts of their everyday life, and who are interested in discovering what its impact has been upon them and their people, right? These two constituencies expect quite different learning experiences in dealing with the subject of the course. So there's two levels of issue here, two issues popping up. One is, what is the Stanford ethos? What is the pushback that people are getting when they're trying to institutionalize this intellectual project? And then also, different people want different things from these programs. And that is a difficulty that is a barrier that needs to be managed. That comes from uh, St. Clair Drake's report to the Ford Foundation. And then finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about what some of these interdisciplinary issues are. What is the issue with creating a program that's interdisciplinary rather than a freestanding department? And then I'll wrap up with a few suggestions about how to bypass that or how to get through that. 
So after St. Clair Drake managed that program, there was a later report below. Inevitably, an interdepartmental structure slows up the process of recruiting a faculty for African and Afro-American studies program and for effecting curriculum innovation. I'm not going to read the whole quote. There's more to it. But the idea simply is that if you're spread out amongst all these disciplines, your department is mainly composed of joint hires, then that could really slow things up. That could really slow things up. So when Jimmy Garrett started in 1966, 1967, all these committees were kind of slowing things down. In 1970, this was still an issue at Stanford. And I can tell you, having uh, written an entire book on this, this continues to be a persistent issue where university bureaucracies kind of slow things down rather than speed them up. So then the final question is what to do. What should we do if you're really interested in pushing from a program structure to a department structure? Well, in the From Black Power book, I actually go through three or four different examples of programs that succeeded, some of them failed, some of them didn't do so well, some of them did great. And so I just want to take uh, one minute to talk about one program that I think may be analogous to what's happening at Stanford, which is the Harvard program or department. That was a department that also faced many administrative obstacles. I detailed them in the book. And then they regenerated or revitalized or had a renaissance. And for a lot of observers within Africana studies, that was a key turning point in this recent institutional development. So what are a couple of take-home lessons? When you recruit senior faculty, recruit people who have strong bureaucratic skills. That's kind of a very subtle point that non-academics often don't appreciate, which is just because somebody has a great CV or they're an activist, it doesn't mean they understand how universities work. You have to find somebody who understands the ins and outs of universities and can play that game. Number two, find internal allies. Most departments that did pretty well had at least some support from administrators and deans. Number three, find external sources of funding. And this is a key a lesson that I took when I interviewed people around the Harvard department. Skip Gates, for example, is very kind to answer some questions for the book back when I wrote it 15 years ago or 13 years ago. He pointed out and other people pointed out that there were multiple sources of income. It wasn't just the universities providing funding. Instead, you have to get outside supporters who will say, yes, I want to support this at a very high level. And then finally, be prepared for the ups and downs of enrollments. One of the stories of African-American studies and institutionalization is that there's often moments like we have today or a moment like 1969 or 1968. Everybody comes to class, the classes are full, but that's going to change. And this is normal in academia. There are ups and downs and ups and downs. And administrators may love your department one year, but may be distracted the next year or may be hostile the next year. So you have to beforehand expect the ups and downs and be prepared for it so that your program can thrive and you can move up to a department status. And then finally, I just want to thank everybody at the Clayman Institute for doing this, all the other panelists and the funders. I couldn't do this without some funding myself. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rojas. And I think it's such an important point that these institutions are all different and that the Stanford ethos sort of becomes such an important topic in this. And so I thought that I'd ask Professor Glaude about the specific trajectory that African-American studies took at Princeton and what are the sort of historic factors that you think were unique and which ones are the ones that you think could be translatable? Well, thank you so much for inviting me to, to this important conversation, and I'm so delighted to hear from uh, my fellow panelists about this subject. And let's just say up front, it makes little sense to be in 2021 and Stanford University not have a Department of African, yes. African American Studies. Let's just be very clear about that. But I should say that Princeton, we've only graduated for the last three years, our first class of graduates with a degree in African-American studies was three years ago. So we're really late in the game. I think it's important to tell the story of Princeton in light of the story that Professor Rojas just laid out. Uh, 68 was a year in which you saw uh, student energy, student protest have an impact on the campus, arguing for a curriculum that would reflect their experience and in some ways would teach that experience. Princeton decided to take the path of a program and that program involved curating a variety of courses across the various fields and disciplines and kind of in that curation creating a constellation of courses that then would be called African American Studies. Uh, I would happen to be a graduate student at Princeton at a time when after the program was, this was pre-Harvard Dream Team. Uh, the program was actually one of the strongest programs in the country. We had Cornell West as its 
director. We had Arnold Rampersad, Mayo Painter, Wanima Lubiano. I could go on and on and on. They all left. And because the program did not have hiring ability, there is a sense in which it could not reproduce itself. This is one of the important features of departmentalization, right? That you reach for a kind of autonomy so that you can respond to the natural vagaries of the marketplace. People leave, they're poached. If you don't have the ability to reproduce yourself, that you have to rely on the largesse of partnering with other departments, then you could end up with what Princeton had after it had one of the best programs in African-American studies in the country. It then literally had only one African-American assistant professor on campus across the fields, right, across the various disciplines. Princeton is unique in this sense, and this presented us with a unique challenge. Princeton is departmentally driven. Departments at Princeton constitute the center of gravity. So programs, centers do not offer majors. We have certificates. Certificates constitute our minor, what is the equivalent of minors, but programs cannot offer concentrations or majors. And Princeton is, in effect, a liberal arts college on steroids. Uh, if you want to have an anchor in the institutional life of the university, you need to have an anchor in the undergraduate curriculum. So programs and centers function in some ways as second-class entities on Princeton's campus, no matter how they're funded. Following Professor Rojas's three opponents to building a unit, and I'll be brief here, we found ourselves in the midst of a convergence of two very different events. Larry Summers and Cornell West having their public fallout and Cornell West leaving Harvard and returning to Princeton. I came back to Princeton the same year that Cornell returned. Valerie Smith, who's now the president of Swarthmore, was brought a couple of years earlier to revitalize the program. Nell Painter had been holding the boat steady as it were. Before the fallout at Harvard, Princeton had already convened a special committee run by Anthony Kwame Anthony Appiah. A story has to be written in some ways about Professor Appiah's role in African-American studies as he's with Skip Gates from Cornell to Duke to Harvard and the like. There's the Appiah Committee about what to do with African and African-American studies. The fallout at Harvard happened, so the market shifts. Princeton thinks it has an opportunity to poach Harvard, to really... Rob. So all of this money is set aside to try to hire faculty from Harvard to Princeton. The Appiah Committee is working, doing its work. I'm on that committee. We're trying to imagine African-American studies in light of Princeton's unique environment or distinctive environment, the Stanford ethos, I suppose, the equivalent of the Stanford ethos. Finally, Shirley Tillman, the then president, tells Henry Louis Gates Jr., make a decision um, and when Skip decides to stay at Harvard, that pool of resources that was available for that hiring suddenly was infused into whatever the Appia Committee generated. So African-American studies at Princeton suddenly was flush with money to imagine itself differently. And so we went from a program to a center to a department. Departmental status happened as a result of the University of Missouri action. Princeton students Remember, there was a call for nationwide action in light of the Black Lives Matter movement at the University of Mizzou. Princeton students took over the president's office. And that's when the debate around the Woodrow Wilson naming became national. And one of the demands from the students was a Department of African American Studies. We were already in the process, so the convergence of this flush of money that happened a couple of years earlier, student demand, we were then, we moved from center to department. And one of the things that happened is that we acquired an extraordinary FTE budget, which allowed us to engage in cluster hiring. Much of that hiring involved joint appointments and singular appointments. And that became the kind of cornerstone of what we were able to build. There's a whole conversation I can have, we can have it as we have the exchange, about making the argument around the field and having to provide intellectual justification for the field, which I refuse to do. The price of that ticket has been paid already. But having to talk about bibliographies that oftentimes, and I don't know if Professor Rojas's research revealed this, oftentimes administrators want to fund African-American studies or build an African-American studies program for basically two reasons. One, they want to keep students from taking over buildings. And three, is probably the only way they could diversify their damn faculty. 
Both of those views ignore the extensive bibliography which constitutes the conversation over time that constitutes the field of African-American studies. And part of building this discipline, right, or this field involves building a unit that actually reflects the complex conversations that make up what we do and making that argument at the very beginning of the process of building. Well, that's, that's, that's beautiful. And it's, it's such an um, important reminder that, that it really is about, about the way the university recognizes and positions academic debate, um, right? And that, that the departments are one way in which we say, these, there are people disagreeing very productively, many people disagreeing very productively about this one topic, and that's why it's a department. Uh, and a lot of our programs don't necessarily have that. Um, or they're not necessarily, they don't, that does, isn't always necessarily transported by that. Right. I just really quickly, I was asked the question as we were building African-American studies by the president, then president, what is the big idea in African-American studies? This was the question that was asked to me. And my response was, what is the big idea in English? Yeah. It all depends on who you talk to. I was going to ask Dr. McNair about this in terms of the way operating, and you operate fully inside a program. How does that look day to day? What are the aspects of it, either good or bad, where you sort of notice, okay, what would be different if I were in a, a postdoc in a department right now? Well, the major difference is the idea of like anonymity. You know, everybody knows your name in a program. And mm -hmm. I, I actually like that. I like the community feel of AAAS and that you not only see yourself teaching and working in the program, but you see yourself as a part of a community and someone with responsibility that goes beyond coming to teach, research, and write. Though Those are the priorities. So that's definitely different. I would say the the level of volunteering and the level of like taking extra roles in our programming, though I've done that program before as a student and as a graduate student and now as an instructor, there are extra responsibilities in a program that you would not have in the department. But as far as the professionalization is concerned, that actually works out for me in terms of how the job market is and also in terms of how I come to understand the inner frameworks and working of an institution that works out for me. So I see positives. There are also drawbacks to that, but those negatives fall outside of AAAS. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's something that's worth spotlighting for the undergraduates in attendance, though, that one aspect of program versus department is labor, right? The fact that in departments, who owes what labor is actually far more reglamented than it is, I think, in most programs. I say this as having directed one myself, and every time no one stepped up to teach one of our core classes, it was me. I was the, I was the teacher. And, you know, there you have the sinking feeling. And so on the one hand, I loved every minute of it, of course, but, and it is this close connection to the students, but it is also, you're not protected from self-exploitation, frankly. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it, but if there is an element of it, it's certainly more exhausting <laughs> to be in a program than to be in a department. Dr. Robinson, I wanted to ask you about the question sort of, of attracting talents to a department versus a program. You were on the job market not too long ago, and can I ask you sort of, you know, you don't have to reveal anything that would make things overly identifiable, but what are the questions you would be asking if you were to be hired into a either program or department of AAAS? What would be the concerns you'd have about one or the other? Sure, thank you. Yeah, and you know, I've been a part of and a graduate of many different kinds of departments and programs. And so I learned through that process a lot of different kinds of aspects of how programs versus departments can operate at different universities. Questions about labor, obviously, are always an important kind of aspect of that. Who does what labor? And then how is that labor recognized? And to, to what end does that labor kind of go? And then also thinking, too, about across what is the network? 
what is the network one is a part of? Because as one is on the job market, as one enters a department, as one enters the field, these kind of networks have different kinds of nodes and different kinds of relations to each other. And the ways in which we kind of think through knowledge making, knowledge creation, and then also the kind of everyday labor of the university, you know, what the node is at that university, what the important kind of ground for that node becomes an important conversation. For example, in a program at a university where the program does not have hiring power, for example, that's a very different kind of labor. And as Professor Blau was talking about in terms of joint appointments, right? What is the labor of a faculty member working between different kinds of categories, right? And so those are the types of things that I think are kind of essential to think through as I was, you know, thinking through the job market as well. And being a graduate of a program, I also think that there's important ways that funding operated for programs versus departments. Departments had a lot of internal funding and that they could make decisions on decisions for supporting the curricular decisions they wanted to make, but also for supporting the different kinds of intellectual and broader field contributions that they were thinking of making. And these are really essential aspects of a department that can operate the kind of the word freestanding really feels important here that can operate both within itself and then but also in connection to the larger university. And so as an assistant professor coming in, I see the department being a it was always a unit that was always used in reference to how that kind of labor could be used, right? And became right. an important, important, the important kind of unit, kind of the paragraph of the larger conversation of the university, right? And so those were important aspects to this that I thought about quite a lot myself. And did the question of tenure come up for you at all? Because that's the other thing. The capacity to hire is also the capacity to tenure, ultimately. I don't know. There might be universities where that's disaggregated, but most that I'm aware of, if you can hire, you can tenure someone. Exactly. And the idea yeah. that maybe your colleagues are not the ones who decide on your own tenure, that's a... I mean, sometimes that can be good if you hate your colleagues, but in many cases, it can be quite destructive. Would that have entered into the equation for you? Yes. I mean, yes. And the way people would talk about who your colleagues are. Mm -hmm. right? And who you will be in conversation with and how that conversation progresses, right? It became very clear that in a program setting where you are joint appointed into a program, you're ultimately kind of indebted to colleagues in different programs, different places outside of the program work. I would also say that there's a lot of the way your own scholarship would progress and develops, right, is also impacted as well as we think about working within multiple kinds of kind of institutional entities or bodies. So yeah, that was a definite kind of conversation that came up a lot as I was considering, you know, uh, thinking across the different kind of structures that one can be hired into. One question that came up in the Q&A already and that I, I know when Professor Rojas talked about the Stanford ethos, and I'd love to get all of your sense, all of your sense, really, whoever would feel comfortable talking about this. You sometimes get the argument, well, isn't maybe the idea of the department or the power of the department itself superannuated and we should just do away with it? Maybe the idea is not to departmentalize this or that field, but to just break the power of the department because we're all interdisciplinary now anyway or something like that. That's a an objection that I'm sure anyone who's ever tried this has encountered. What are good arguments against this? What would be a good reply to that? Or what's, what's your reply to that? Well, maybe a very simple thing to say is just to repeat what every single other panelist has mentioned in passing and sometimes directly, which is that departments are really a way that a university institutionalizes knowledge. This is valuable. This is not valuable. Universities cannot equally support all forms of knowledge. So when they go into a department situation, they're saying we're investing in it. We're creating a major in it, possibly a graduate program. Both Kimberly and Eileen had great comments about the power to hire. This is also something that Eddie brought up. And so once you say, you know, we're going interdepartmental, we don't need a department anymore, you're bypassing the major point, which is that somebody has decided this knowledge is not worth the investment. And that has to be disputed and put on the table. You have to ask why it doesn't merit these funds and this amount of attention. Whenever I hear that argument, it raises a, a number of different questions for me. And one of the things that I've been doing is kind of making the analogy with the sciences. So you can have the sciences where there's a problem that drives interdisciplinary work. So we're going to talk about the brain. And you could have psychologists. You could have a whole range of folk coming in trying to think about this. And suddenly a new field would show up as a result of this, right? 
and you could neuroscience or something like that, right? I mean, and then the university has to figure out a configuration to respond to it, right? Mm -hmm. And so in our case, right, the university was trying to figure out what the hell to do with neuroscience because it emerged out of this interdisciplinary conversation that was driven by a problem that brought folk from traditional disciplines together and that it generated this new field of inquiry, as it were. And it seems to me that that particular approach, let me put it this way, and then once it happened, the university had to trigger, figure out how to institutionalize that practice mm -hmm. within a place that is departmentally centered. Only departments offered majors, only departments were seriously endowed and the like. So basically we found that the neuroscience folks founded a department. So part of what we hear in that question is kind of the collision of two very different things. One is what will be the institutional configuration of a kind of practice that crosses the disciplinary boundaries that departments represent? Even though neuroscience looks like a department, the way it functions, just like music, just like religion, right? You have all of these people from these various places doing work where there's a term of art that organizes them being together. It's just the configuration within the university setting that allows for that work to happen. It's just when it comes to us that suddenly we need to do away with departments altogether. Right. Instead of trying to think about the kind of work that we're doing, how do we anchor that within particular configuration that is recognizable to the university in some way. You're making a claim, if I understand you correctly, not just on space within the university, but on time. You're saying this will always be a field of study at this university in perpetuity. Um, whereas a program is sort of saying, this is a new problem and we need, now need to address this. It. Like, well, this is not a new thing. I say this as someone who sees this from the other side. My appointment is in the Department of German Studies, which is, I hope none of my colleagues are listening to this, but it is a testament to what the university once cared about, and it's carried forward in perpetuity as this habit, because we have tenured lines. Everyone thinks we're kind of big for what we do and how important that is in the modern world, you know, but it is, you get this incredible sense of just how the university has committed itself to making this an area worth studying forever, right? I do think you're right that, that in some way, the way interdisciplinarity is often positioned, it's sort of situational, saying this is what we care about right now, and 20 years we might not. And so there is a, there's a kind of, there's a kind of a lack of temporal extension there too. One question that I have, maybe for the younger scholars in the, in the panel, is about the question, so on the one hand, we've talked a lot about how the impetus of activism can turn into institutional change at the university. At the same time, of course, a scholarly project is always going to be different from what's happening out in the street. How do you work with that? What are the concessions that you feel one has to make in order to responsibly do this? What are the things where you sort of say, you know, dear students, be prepared to be a little disappointed by this? Are there such things? Are there concessions along the way from this activist impulse to scholarship informed by that, that you think are perfectly fine? And are there others that one, if Stanford undertakes this uh, departmentalization, it should be super careful about? Are there, are there things that, you know, where you just say, if you lose that, then it's really not worth the victory? I have a clarification question. Do you mean activism on campus within the institution or activism emerging off campus amongst the community? I meant off campus. I guess that was my question. How do you, as someone who's doing this work within the university, where do you see concessions that you feel okay making? Are, are there any? Or are there others that you think would be extremely risky if Stanford were to make them? Well, I come to this area of study as someone who I have an undergraduate degree, a bachelor's in Africana studies out of a program in a multidisciplinary studies department got my master's from UCLA out of an IDP, an interdepartmental program, and got the PhD from UC Berkeley, African American Studies Department, but trained in African Diaspora Studies. And the reality is, thinking historically, African American Studies, Africology, Black Studies, whatever we name it, whatever we call it, came from community demand. It was birthed out of movements. It wasn't birthed out of bureaucracy or an institution in its benevolence coming to think that African-American studies was a good idea on a college campus. It was birthed out of community demand. So concessions were made early on in the establishment of the different programs that came to be departments and centers in the uh, 70s and 80s, where they had to ask the question, who is qualified 
to teach, who is qualified to lead these programs and departments, that we will publish books from these areas of study that will be taught in college classrooms. So there are concessions. Do we bring community people in to teach specific courses in this new emerging area of study? People in the community who've done the work, who've written books, however, they don't have credentials that would be recognized from an institution. So concessions were made where you want a department, there's a push towards professionalization that leaves certain scholarship out. And so understanding and taking Professor God's comment to heart about this idea of we don't need to justify that African-American studies is worthy of institutional support or as an intellectual endeavor. But it, there is an understanding that there was a split that has occurred mm-hmm. and it continues to be a contention between do we seek validation from community or do we only seek validation from an institution? So where our allegiance lie with the people, but also with an institution understanding that. So when we talk about concessions, my thing is I am invested in community partnerships. I'm invested in relevant education. But the call for Black studies and education that is about Black people and their role in present-day society That came from organizations like the Black Panthers and other organizations, right? So where has this this split in what responsibility that we have uh, to community partners and in a way where community would invest in a place like Stanford, where students attend who are from all over the country, but there is this idea that there is a faculty piece there's a student piece, but there's also a community piece that needs to happen when we think of who gets to teach, what do we get to teach, and what will be legible to academia, in a sense. Uh, so concessions have been made in the past, and one concession that I don't think we should make is this idea of being in a precarious position, mm-hmm. like a center or a program, when in actuality we need to recruit you know, talented Black faculty with specializations in African-American studies, African diaspora studies, African studies. And until then, we have a whole piece of scholarship that is absent on campus. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way that I would answer that, you know, looking at it from the long view of not just my professional history and academic history, but understanding that community piece has been there. But the reality is that the movement becomes bureaucratized. It becomes institutionalized. And we have to understand our position, knowing that that's what has taken place and what will sustain us over over time. Yeah, and I agree, just to jump in there, I agree with what Dr. McNair is saying, that as we think about Black studies as a discipline that, you know, that has a longstanding discipline, and I also have been, though, studying in interdisciplinary programs in theater and performance studies, that interdisciplinary work I've been doing has often dovetailed with work in Black studies and I've been indebted to Black studies as a discipline at all of the universities I've been a part of. And so also I think that there's something very important about the ways in which faculty hired into a Black studies program can think with the community of undergraduate, potential graduates across campus, and then communities to think through the different kinds of questions about activism and protest within the manifestation of the field at a university, right? I'm thinking both locally and then across and then nationally as well. You know, can I just add something really quickly? You know, sometimes when we were formed as a department, we had to navigate the expectation that we'd also function as a center, as if we were the third world center, quote unquote, Mm. or the Carl Field Center, right? That the students could come to this particular academic unit and expect something from it that they would get from a unit within student affairs. And that conflation actually has an impact on the tenure success or failure of our faculty because faculty are being asked to do a wide range of things, right? And in their assessments, it becomes a very challenging thing to face. And and let me put it this way, in the evolution, I think uh, Professor McNair hit hit it dead on the head, in the evolution of the field, there have been conversations about our relationship to our activism that made us possible. So in the field of Africana philosophy, for example, philosophy born of struggle looks very different than philosophy post Kwame Anthony Appiah's work in The Uncompleted Argument. Why would I say that? Because in Philosophy Born of Struggle, 
the central category defining how they're thinking about freedom, race, has not been subject to critical scrutiny. Two generations later, the central category becomes the basis for a subfield called the philosophy of race. You think about debates in literature around African-American literature. Is it social realist? Is it not? Then you read Hortense Spillers or Valerie Smith's work. Suddenly, there's a different orientation to the material that extends the conversation. So part of what we mean by taking the bibliography of the field seriously is to try to begin to track and chart those conversations over time and space. What else is a discipline but simply a series of conversations held over time and space, mm -hmm. right? And when we begin to think about African-American studies or Africana studies or African and African-American studies as a complex conversation over time with a variety of tributaries, our task then is to figure out an institutional structure that reflects that nuance, right, as best as possible. And that is the long-term sustainable approach to anchoring the field, anchoring the discipline in any institutional space. And activism can come in, but it can't be the anchor. The conversation over time is the anchor. Right, and in fact, a department, as Professor Rojas was pointing out, a department can also weather a moment when, I mean, this field is hard to imagine, but when there's less development, right? To say, well, we're ready, we stand ready for when these questions become important again. I think that's a really well-taken point. One question that sort of came up for us thinking through this, you know, we, when we conceived this event and tried to figure out how can we help in this push, we felt invested in it. All these questions about disciplinarity and the conversation over time is, of course, one that we've often raised in, in feminist studies. But one thing that we sort of have wondered, and I'd love to ask all of you, is what can the traditional departments do? Not like the members of them. Hopefully they're engaged already and they're advocating and that's great. But what can an actual department do? What could a department chair do that would free space and would allow for departmentalization? Maybe, Professor Glaude, you have the, the most recent sort of memory of it, but I would also love to hear from Professor Rojas about how that functioned. I mean, because normally, you know, academics love zero-sum games and people will feel that something's being taken away from them or something. What were the most powerful interventions that a department department made at Princeton or at Harvard before that in order to make this happen? They voted yes <laughs> when it came before the faculty, right? They it was really that simple. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it took us to that moment, right? But I mean, I mm -hmm. think Professor Rojas's one of his points was to find internal allies, right? Mm -hmm. One of the challenges we face as a field is our success. Poor Black Studies came on the scene. People weren't teaching African-American literature in English departments. They weren't teaching Black politics. African-American religion wasn't studied in the religion departments, right? African-American history, was it really a real rooted subfield in, in the historic history departments? Perhaps, but not quite. So part of the success of our field is that we see subdisciplines within the traditional field, the subfields within the traditional disciplines. And so then the question becomes, are you making the argument just simply to, to silo? Are you ghettoizing the subject by pulling it into one place, into one building? Will you then let the departments off the hook Departments that had hired someone to teach African-American history or African-American religion or, or the like. Uh, and so one of the challenges we had to face was to get chairs to see that we weren't challenging the presence of those subfields within their disciplines, right? But we had to make the argument that African-American studies as a field, and we chose African-American studies on purpose because we felt that the nomenclature, the naming that African-American studies had been too often tethered to something that was narrow and provincial. And that when we tell the true story of the field, that it's always been broad, it's always extended beyond US nation state. The field has never been narrow in this way. This is my beef with Paul Gilroy and all these folks. But the point is that we got chairs to see that the field, the discipline itself, warranted a yes. And it was our natural allies, history, English, religion, the folks that we already had joint appointments with. So that's the short answer. I just cut it short. I could tell you all sorts of stories about the politics. Right. <laughs> Two short notes about that, about what the disciplines can do to support departments. Number one, as you mentioned, don't set up zero-sum games. Mm -hmm. so for example, I have a courtesy appointment in our AAADS department in Indiana, but I know that if I were to ever teach a course there, sociology with zero credit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would have to give up a class of 100, 150 students for a class of 20 students, and that rubs people the wrong way. 
So administrators and departments have to say, let's be creative. Is there a way to share resources, get support in a way that doesn't undermine either department? And then here's kind of a more subtle point I'll just toss out there, which is older existing disciplines are great legitimators for new disciplines. So for example, if you're an editor of an academic journal or you're teaching a course and you get a submission from somebody in Africana unit, you know, treat it with the respect that all submissions will get, publish work, high quality work from scholars in those areas. And then you'll see people say, oh, I wanna hire an economist. And it's way easier if they have an American Economic Review article. Or, you know, you can go through all the disciplines. And it's not the only way to legitimize or to build prestige for somebody. But that's one relatively low-cost way of doing it because most disciplines have a history of studying race and ethnicity in some way. Some of it generated by Black study scholars themselves. So they can give back in that way. Thank you. I think that that's something that a lot of our listeners really want, wanted to know. How can the traditional structure of the university express its desire for this institutional change? One question that I think came up a little bit was in terms of, you know, we've talked a little bit about the politics of how to ask for this, how to demand this. And, and I think we've come up with a lot of very intelligent strategies. But there is, of course, also the issue of that I think Professor Glaude brought up earlier, which is if there is a kind of feeling here that this one is one is getting institutional charity, then then in some way there's something being lost here already, that this is something that is owed and that this is something that really needs to be part of the structure. How does one thread that needle? I believe you said that in a Time Magazine piece in 2016, right when the departmentalization at Princeton was happening, you talked about this is not a charity on the part of the university. How does one square these two things? The fact that on the one hand, Obviously, it shouldn't be this pattern of this being given by the institution needs to be disrupted, needs to be broken. On the other hand, one has to work with other stakeholders in order to make it happen. How is that best navigated? Well, you know, I'm not so much interested in their intention, whether the mm -hmm. provost at the time was thinking he was, you know, doling out charity. The only thing I know is that we went from two faculty to 14. Right. The only thing I know is that uh, they hardwired money that was termed. They allowed me to talk to what we call our ones in development. Whatever was motivating them, I don't give a damn. What we were trying to do is to build an institution. So one of the things that I did, I remember they gave us a building, Stanhope Hall, the third oldest building on campus. The entire building is African-American studies. We've outgrown it. We're now moving into what is now called Morrison Hall. Isn't that wonderful? Tony Morrison Hall at Princeton, of all places. One of the things, I, they were about to do the ribbon cutting at Stanhope Hall, and I yelled because I'm prone for the dramatic. I was, stop, stop. And they were like, what the hell is Eddie doing? He stopped the president from doing so. Then I ran and snatched Ivy off of Nassau Hall, the Central Administration Building. And then I snatched the Ivy off of Stanhope Hall, and I twisted it. And then I put it on the door and I said, cut that. Because Juanima Lubiano taught me something early on as a graduate student. We want to build something for that four-year-old girl who will end up at Princeton. We want to build something that will last long enough for her to land. So I don't care what their motivation is. How do we leverage it in order to build an institution that will first deepen the education experience of Stanford students? because it makes no sense that a student can be educated at Stanford and not be equipped with the knowledge set that African-American studies provides in this global landscape. Makes no sense. Right. So that's the first thing we need to do. The second thing we need to do is we need to build an institutional space that is not contingent upon the personalities in it. So whether I'm at Princeton or not, they cannot pull this plate. They cannot pull African-American studies up. It's in the ground. The roots are deep. So even when Larry Summers tried to pull up African and African-American studies at Harvard, he had to pull it in the ground. The roots were too deep. Whether they think it's charity or not, meh, doesn't matter. You have to build in such a way that once the administration changes, your opportunity doesn't disappear. You know, as someone who was educated in undergrad in North Carolina State out of a program within a department and then moving on to UCLA to Afro-American Studies, which was, again, this interdepartmental program where a number of departments in humanities and social sciences had dedicated faculty in that IDP, and then moving on to a department at UC Berkeley. I must say that from my perspective, 
this idea of crisis or Black studies being in crisis because of lack of resources, lack of investment from the institution, a lack of people power when it comes to who actually gets to do the labor, as well as intellectual endeavor production, who gets to teach and train new talented scholars, graduate students, postdocs. I've seen those issues in every single configuration Mm -hmm. that I have ever encountered for the field of Black studies. And I call it Black studies for a reason, but I do know that we have different, different names. But in a sense, depending on the institution, just like Professor Glog said, it lets you know whether or not you're going to have, you know, another precarious situation where you don't know if you're going to make it to next year or not. And departmentalization, you can't get rid of a department you know, as easily as you can a program or fold that program into a center or fold that program into an institution. And I've also had the the chance to teach in different types of environments as well, at least two departments, one being Pan-African Studies at Cal State LA. And understanding that now Pan-African Studies is going to be a part of a College of Ethnic Studies. So there are all these different, the second College of Ethnic Studies in the country, um, San Francisco State having the first. With that being in mind, I see the problem occurring over and over again, but it speaks to the condition of Blackness and Black people, period. And it's reflected on campus when we talk about institutional investment and also investment from other faculty, right? Do other faculty on campus in other departments view, you know, departmentalization of AAAS being worthwhile. So we need to, you know, think about that as well and the student element. So I'll just stop there. Yeah, I also feel that speaking from someone who got her PhD in a field outside of AAAS, but has been always in relation to and influenced by Black studies, African-American studies, different kinds of configurations of that field, I want to just highlight the importance of longevity and those roots uh, that Professor Gloud and, and Dr. McNair were talking about. These were essential and important for someone looking to do work that spoke to and with that core. And I think it was essential that as an undergraduate student at Harvard, that the African American Studies Department was there and seeing some of the dynamics of that department at the university and learning a lot about what that looks like as I tried to do interdisciplinary work. But understanding and seeing as an undergrad, as a graduate student, how important knowledge within these kind of institutional structures was. How I could see the ways in which the academy sets up different ways that it kind of makes those visible. Like yeah. being able to walk into a classroom with visiting faculty from across the, you know, the country talking about the creation of Black Studies departments in 1968. I took a class with Cheryl Finley, who was visiting, right? And so this was this, this, these intersections, these cross dynamics were essential and they were essential and they were possible. They were possible because of the department structure. because of the roots. And however we can create those, you know, we need those. And as someone who has now been at Stanford for a few years now, but still fairly, you know, new in some ways, our students, all of you, um, this is an important moment for that. We need that kind of core here. And I would be so delighted to be able to continue that legacy of talking across the intellectual kind of communities with that kind of core faculty and Black studies. So I know that Professor Glaude will have to leave us in a few minutes. So I wanted first of to thank you for being here and doing an incredibly busy day. And I want to ask you for final thoughts, if you had any parting words for us in the, I guess, the minute before you have to be on your next Zoom call. You know, it's been an extraordinary journey for us here at Princeton. It's one of the more conservative institutions. So I understand the soil in which you're fighting. I understand it very well. You know, one of the things, though, that I remember saying early on to the administration, if you're not serious, don't waste my time. And I think I can tell the story of so many folks who have toiled in the vineyard trying to make this happen. And what Stanford needs to do very clearly is put its money where its mouth is to invest in the field and in hiring and the like. And and then you build and you build something that will last well beyond your time at Stanford. Um, I think that's the approach that has led to, to our success here at Princeton. And what's so beautiful about it is that we've been hiring ever since. And every junior faculty member at Princeton that I've hired, that we've hired, has been tenured. We're trying to think about the field over time. That's what I hope you will be doing at Stanford. I can't wait to come and see the ribbon cutting 
first building at Stanford. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for these inspiring words. I really hope that there'll be ribbon cuttings very soon. I think that one question that we haven't really addressed yet is how framing this matters. So someone brought up, you know, that we are sort of, we're using a lot of different acronyms and different names. And I wonder whether you think of that nomenclature as kind of a distraction, not that it doesn't reflect serious disciplinary differences, but that ultimately when it comes to creating a department, it's ultimately a secondary or whether you think that actually there are things here that as students push for this and alumni push for this, they really ought to be being very clear about what they're asking for. The one thing I would say to that, and I'd love to hear what Dr. McBarron and Professor Rojas has to say. The one thing I would say is that, you know, naming does matter. For talking about instant recognition, like what are we doing? Like what is the thing here? And the thing that strikes me as being kind of in relation to a lot of different kinds of departments for Black studies named in different ways is that if it's African and African-American studies, there must be an African diasporic focus and center present. There must be people who speak to and can speak from an international kind of uh, focal point. And I hope for that and I want that as well. I think of this as not just a, you know, U.S. or, you know, North American project. We need to think broadly. And I think that is something that I would like to kind of highlight in terms of naming. My experiences with the different difference in naming and how sometimes those names change over time, it has a lot to do with the scholarship being produced out of those departments and programs, the faculty present there, but also what they consider to be the canon or the foundational text in those departments. Something that I really appreciate learning out of uh, being a student in this area is if I see Pan-African Studies or I see Africana Studies or Africology or whatever the name is, I almost instinctively know, I know what to expect, what debates are going to be present right? What texts, concepts will be drawn from. And I actually love that about the different, the different names because you know that the faculty in those apartments have expertise in those theories and concepts and those changing mm -hmm. debates over time. So I don't see the differences in naming as a negative, and I don't think an umbrella term for it is necessary. Mm -hmm. We need to recognize that the naming signals other thing. It doesn't necessarily signal, you know, inconsistency or anything like that, but it very much takes on the identity of the people in the department, the scholarship produced out of it, who they'd like to attract to the department, right. and also the right. text, the historical text that they consider foundational to what they're doing at that institution. Right. It is an advertisement to graduate students, for instance, and to undergraduates. Here's what we're about. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Rojas. I'll just say briefly, I completely agree with Eileen and Kimberly that the naming matters as a type of identity, but I will then rewind to an earlier comment from Kimberly where she said, uh, what we got to do is we got to, whatever it is you, you're doing, it has to be legible to the institution. And as somebody who's read thousands, literally thousands of pages of bureaucratic documents on African-American studies, I have never run across a document that says, thank God they changed their name. That was right. <laughs> like it's never happened. Right. Usually the conversation is, I'm a little worried about activism, but if they can show me that this is legitimate in terms of scholarly publication and teaching, then my ears are open. So I'll leave it with that. I want to thank our panelists for their incredible interventions today and for sharing their expertise and their experience. And now I do want to hand it over to the two representatives of the Black Graduate Student Association who will talk about next steps and what people can do if they want to get involved. So thank you. Hi, my name is Jamila. I am one of the many graduate students that have been organizing for the departmentalization of EEES. And I want to thank you all, the Clayman Institute, all of the faculty and professors that have really shared some really important insights about the politics and the problems and the tensions, but also the opportunity for departmentalization of EEES nationally. So many students, as you all probably know, have been organizing for the past 50 years at least, for the <laughs> departmentalization of AAAS. And recently, over the past three to four years, graduate students at Stanford across departments have been organizing to departmentalize Black studies to really call Stanford to account for the systematic failure and institutional neglect of Black studies as intellectual project and the continued disparaging of that project through initiatives like Impacts of Race in America, but also through the continued solicitation of labor 
offered by students and by the Black community writ large for more self-studies, more evidence that Professor Blog was talking about that has already been done over and over again. And so we encourage all of you to first sign a change.org petition that many of you might have seen circulate following some of the original op-eds in June. This is really important. We've so far gathered over 5,000 signatures. It's bit.ly bit slash AAAS petition. And that's really important as a general collective of names, of signatures that show the grand support that people have to institutionalize and departmentalize AAAS. And so thank you all again for giving us space and time to share this with you all. Thank you all again for this extremely important conversation and panel. And we hope that these conversations can be sustained uh, for the long term. Thank you so much for that. And I also just want to say thanks to the, the panelists and the students who contributed today. But above all, thank you, of course, to our colleagues in AAAS and in CCSRE who have been fighting this fight for a long time. Professor Rojas reminded us this has been going on for so long. We're in awe of your incredible work on this and your continued work on this, and we stand with you. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dodd and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We're eternally grateful for funding support from the institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we're especially grateful to our feminist colleagues, Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The Podfather is Arlenier Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following products, services, and entities. Blue Apron, Hymns. Casper Mattresses and That Stupid Wine Club started by two MIT grads. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if instead you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there. Thank you.